welcome to Pride in Protest, the podcast. Pride in Protest acknowledges the lands on which we make our podcast, which for this episode is Wurundjeri Land and Darug Land. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and stand in solidarity with Aboriginal people against the ongoing colonial occupation, racism and oppression inflicted by settlers on this continent. In this episode, we talk to Alfred Peck about his experiences as a queer filmmaker and his latest feature film, Freedom Street. Hi, Alfred. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Uh, I've just finished work, actually. How about yourself? I'm good. Yeah, I'm just relaxing on an afternoon in Melbourne self-isolation lockdown. So (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. Um, Would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, So you guys know my name is Alfred. So I'm based in Sydney, Australia. I am Australian citizen, but I actually migrated to Australia when I was in high school, and I actually came from Indonesia. Um, and my cultural background is that I am a mix of Indonesians and Chinese in my heritage. Um, I also came from multi-faith and multi-ethnic um, kind of family. So I guess kind of grow. I guess growing up, it's just sort of been a bit of everything uh and that actually is quite a unique experience um not a lot of indonesians are as diverse in terms of their experience as i am that i found out later on because i thought oh everyone's diverse i thought my family is like oh you know bit of this bit of that and uh, again i didn't expect that the diversity of my identity also treading towards my sexual identity because i'm queer um the reason why i said i'm queer is because it's a lot more inclusive because i am bi but then i'm also in that bi gay spectrum so i don't really and it's really hard to categorize so i just thought look i'm just gonna say i'm queer yeah, <laughs> uh, i'm definitely not straight but i definitely enjoy uh, you know i definitely respect and enjoy people of all genders yeah awesome i mean you know, myself as well, being a queer Indonesian, it can be a pretty difficult thing to navigate, actually. Um, I know in my experience, the community hasn't always been super accepting or super educated, uh, even though we have a very rich history of gender diversity and sexual diversity in our, you know, Mm pre-colonial history. Yeah. So what's your experience been as a queer Indonesian person? Do you feel like those two identities have, you know, worked well together or been an asset you know um so just to contextualize i migrated here when i was in high school and only around that time that i actually start to realize that oh i'm not actually straight um prior to that i never really have a strong indication or like a strong memory of having been sexually gravitated to anything um so i guess i count myself as someone who's very lucky to realize uh, my queer identity and having already migrated to a much more accepting society but that being said um i know and i've observed like all of these you know oppressions of what what it means to being not straight and having you know um, being against the societal expectations back home um growing up not just by the virtues of sexuality, but by all other aspects of our lives, pretty much. Um, whether you're someone's from a different religion or someone's from a different cultural background or whether they're social status. So I've also kind of had that awareness prior to adding that queer 
or sexuality aspect to it. Um, so I guess I've always been very sensitive in terms of just being different or having very different identity. And again, it's not something that I, I, I choose to. This is something that I was born into. Um, and I guess sexuality is the same thing, but I'm very lucky. Um, that being said, I know that through later on, learning the history about my home country and just a little bit of history about queer cultures and societies back home, um, is there's, there's definitely like a lot more rich history, a much, much richer history than most Western countries as well. But, you know, um, whether it's through colonialism or whether through whether, whether it's through religion or whatnot, uh, there's so many factors there. And I can't wait in the future to research more about it because that's something that I want to come to terms with, what it means to be queer and what it means to be Indonesian. So yeah, watch, watch, your, watch the space. Yeah, absolutely. I very much relate and I feel really similarly. I, I would love to mm-hmm. hear what you do research. Um, and so you're a filmmaker. You, you know, have been interested in videography and, te- and storytelling. Um, what really got you into that space? Uh, I would say that I, I guess... I guess I've always been a bit of a storyteller. Like I just love listening to stories and I just love telling people like my experience or other people's experience and just kind of live through it. And for me, because again, that comes back from my diverse experiences growing up because I used to move, I wouldn't say I moved different, different cities, but I used to travel a lot when I was back home with my family. Uh, we go through different parts of Indonesia, um, again, coming from multi-ethnic and multi-religious family, it means that I also get to hear so many perspectives growing up. and But also just coming to terms with a lot of these different aspects, right? So uh, there's always stories there and there's always fascinating perspectives there. Um, so that means uh, growing up, I didn't really know what I... And so towards the end of high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But then I discovered that, oh, media is a thing. Like, oh, you can actually like, you know, um, do videos and stuff and like, oh, if I do videos, I can just talk about anything, you know. But it's it's one of those careers where I just thought, look, it's a career, it's clear, um, but you can go into so many directions in life. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to get into this. Um, so that's pretty much how I ended up doing videography and storytelling and filmmaking. Um, never really planned it. I just have way too many interests. So that's me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And your most recent film, um, it's called Freedom Street. Can you tell us a bit about it? Uh, there's, there, of course, there's a story to it. But in essence, what Freedom Street is, is a documentary outlining the harrowing stories of Junaid, Ashfaq, and Aziza, the three refugees who are affected by the consequence of the other side of Operation sovereign border policy that Australia has enacted since 2013. And this will be a feature-length documentary that tells their moving stories while deconstructing Australia's policies in a series of conversations with various experts who contextualizes and illuminates the entire issue. And just as a blurb, if you want to have a bite, uh, Freedom Street uh, uh, outlines 14,000 refugees who are trapped in limbo caught in the crossfire of Australia's border policy and Indonesia's indifference. An interesting fact, the name 
of the sorry the title of the film is actually inspired from the very street name when translated to english where the um refugee hostels are situated in the city of makassar so um which was supposed to refer to the independence of indonesia from the dutch but then that's why they converted a lot of these former student hostels and put the refugees uh, accommodation and that's where some of our tax money goes unfortunately so there you go yeah i mean i think i remember watching um sort of like a short version mm-hmm. of freedom street um when it first dropped and for me that realization of like what the title was relating to hit like really hard emotionally because i really I guess for me the independence of Indonesia from the Dutch it should be a story of liberation and yet here it is just so harshly confronting the oppression yes. um and the yes. situation of these refugees in in a country that you know was born from a liberation war and so it's really just sad and and very moving to to see that um oh yes that metaphor really deeply embedded in the feature film and yeah i guess what is the situation of these refugees and asylum seekers both you know in indonesia and as well kind of interacting with the australian government bureaucracy as as a result of this policy uh, australia has basically cleaned themselves up in the eyes of international law because they've designed the system in a way that you know makes themselves unaccountable in that in the legal sense but they've actually incentivized Indonesia financially and militarily uh, through joint cooperations of military and police training and navy training as well but also uh through foreign donations and spending on um organizations like international organization for migration um they've been funded by our tax money essentially in order to keep and incentivize Indonesia to keep these people at bay. Right, and at bay means not crossing the waters into quote unquote like Australian territory basically. Basically, uh by providing them substandard living um income for uh for for about 8,000 500 refugees in the country there's 14,000 of them um so not all of them actually receive monthly income uh about 5,000 of them are truly destitute um and most of these people came after March 2018 um and there's another policy that goes with that um that's I think I believe that was during what prime ministership I don't remember which prime ministership that was But anyway, it was during that time. I believe that was Malcolm Turnbull. Anyway, mm. uh, it was during that era uh and I know that Scott Morrison has to do with the uh this as well, but this was back in 2014 where um refugees who are stuck in Indonesia and who applied for UNHCR in Indonesia um will never be resettled to Australia as a result. And I'm not saying that refugees wanting to flock to Australia because it's Australia it's mostly the fact that that's just where the road of protection and the road of migration uh has led them to um most people actually migrate towards europe and like north africa the ones that ended up in southeast asia are actually much smaller numbers 
and it's even smaller in Indonesia. So that's why it's only 14,000. I mean, it's very big for us in the scheme of things, but in the, in the rest of the world, it's actually very small numbers. Right. And so they're being given a very small income. Some of them are not being given any income at all. Yeah. And they're sort of trapped in these hostels, unable to really access real life in Indonesia. That's right. right. Like they, they can't access, you know, education for their children. They can't leave these hostels. They can't live a normal life. Yeah. They're just kind of stuck there waiting for a UNHCR application to go through, but yes. unable to go to any other country that's nearby, really. Well, because the only other countries that they can go to is Australia and New Zealand, and obviously the path has been blocked, and that's because of Australia's fear of boat people. Again, this is just a very crude way of describing it. It's obviously a lot more complicated than that, but essentially that's what it is. Yeah. And so to film Freedom Street, um, you travelled back to Indonesia and actually visited in person. Um, what was that like for you? Uh, I could go on about all the mental health issues that I got. Um, it was surreal for me because I'm Indonesian. Saya itu orang Indonesia. Sorry, I'm just saying I'm Indonesian in Indonesian. Um, but... For me, realizing that, you know, I'm an Australian citizen, but this is where my tax money goes to my home country to keep these refugees at bay who have nothing to do with any of anything. Um, Indonesia is a country that already has its own issues, its own human rights issues to its own citizens. These people and the number of people that are stuck there is very negligible to the rest of 270 million Indonesians who exist in my home country. Um, essentially, well, I'm Australian and Indonesian, so this is literally affecting, this is literally impacting both of my home countries. So that's the biggest thing for me. So that was very surreal to see something like that because I know what it's like to live in Indonesia. I know what it's like to live in Australia and I know what it's like to be a foreigner. Um, it's, 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 I don't know, there's just so many surreal moments there. And what I also find quite surreal is that Makassar City, what's, what I find quite also surreal is that Makassar City has become the third largest host um, uh, refugee hosting city in Indonesia. There's about two, two, over 2,000 refugees over there. And Makassar used to actually, the Makassans used to actually trade with the Yoma Yoma people of the Arnhem land prior to the European colonization. So in effect, indirectly or directly, I don't know how the politics goes, but um, the very place that Indonesia used to have contact with, uh, you know, Australia prior to colonization, um, has become the third largest dumping ground of refugees um, in, yeah, in Indonesia. And Yeah, the irony is, of that oh is really God. astounding because, you know, Yolngu people even have shared language with Indonesians, like they call... Um, you know, white people, Belanda, <laughs> like they got that from us. Like we have so much shared history with with people, yeah, from Northern Ireland, especially because the Makassans were such yeah. amazing sailors and so they could take their boats all the way from Makassar down, you know, to the northern part of um, Arnhem Land. And so to hear that that place has now been just turned into this prison, you know, for asylum seekers at, at the behest of like the colonial Australian government 
it, it's truly just astounding, like oh, how yes. damaging that feels mentally, like to know that it's so twisted. Yeah, especially because this is quite literally both of my home countries, you know, I'm an Australian citizen, I love being Australian, but at the same time, how could Australia do something like this to, in a, uh, to refugees who have nothing to do with any of this and how they're incentivizing my home country to continue this yeah, endless nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real perversion, yes. really. Um, and so refugees and asylum seekers in this situation, they face a lot of poverty and discrimination, mm-hmm. um, but also in Australia as well, they face the same thing. The, these oppressive systems are really working together. They're working in tandem. And so I guess, you know, what is the goal of your film in exposing this? Um, I just want to clarify a little bit about how the poverty and discrimination affects um, refugees and asylum seekers in Indonesia and Australia. Um, um, what's really interesting about Australia and its approach is that Australia has a specifically quotized, you know, um, numerically controlled refugee program, which they annually uh, take from UNHCR, right? So these are refugees that are legally accepted, flown into Australia from a refugee camp somewhere around the world. Um, these refugees, when they move to Australia, they get per- they get permanent residency rights effectively, but under the visa for refugees. These people are actually very lucky compared to the rest of the people who are seeking asylum. Uh, be- and Australia actually uses this excuse as a way to say, oh, we actually care about refugees. Look at the people that we resettle. By actually using these exemplary refugees, the fact that the, the, the essentially the cherry-picked ones, they can absolve themselves from actually taking accountability for the other entire issues um, that they have caused. Um, because for those people who are not so lucky to be cherry-picked by Australia, the people who are currently traveling or trapped in Indonesia or in Manus and Nauru in the region, these people they might not necessarily have citizenship to begin with, especially if you're Rohingyans or Tamils or something like that. Hazaras, yeah. And Hazaras. And also, if you do get, if you do have citizenships of some countries, you might not even have the capacity, not just the financial capacity, but like the visa to travel to Australia or to New Zealand or anywhere else of such. These people, um, it's not that for the lack of money, these people don't have a system in which they can safely seek asylum in a country that's supposed to protect them. Uh, So by acknowledging these systems and how unfair it is, um, that's that's just and that's just what minds boggles about it. So the goal of my film is to actually create um, I want to actually create a tool um, for change makers and advocates and refugee rights activists. Um, to use my film as a tool to campaign and change the policy. The problem with um, the the problem that I see in terms of the refugee advocacy sector is that a lot of people are dispersed into a lot of their own missions and a lot of their own um, focus. Uh, there hasn't been a unifying content in which they can focus on a much, much longer term issue that is present currently because the other side of Operation Sovereign Border, which is responsible for creating the Pacific solution in Manus and Nauru, the other side of that is Indonesia. 
Australia has incentivized my home country, Indonesia, to keep the refugees there at bay indirectly. Um, legally, they're absolved from it, but obviously financially and morally otherwise. Um, and this, knowing this, um, and the fact that in our history, we used to actually have reception centers throughout Southeast Asia to accept Vietnamese and other Indo-Chinese refugees, or other refugees in the region, who are genuinely seeking asylum back during the 70s and the 80s until early 90s. There was a way we would actually safely you know, allow these people to seek asylum and seek protection whilst not, you know, being inhumane and keeping these people at bay uh, with, with lots and lots of uncertainty in the region. It's not like we haven't done this before. We've done it in our own way before. Why can't we do it in the 21st century? You know what I mean? Mm, absolutely. And why do you feel so passionately about creating media that you know, strives for social justice and, and is, you know, to be used by activists, you know, for this purpose? Um, there's two reasons for that. Um, I guess I didn't know um, that I was going to go into this. I just like storytelling. But at the same time, my heart was just when I was at uni and trying to volunteer and create content you know, for an organization, I happened to stumble upon an organization called People Just Like Us. And they talk about refugee stories and the context in which this whole entire situation has happened, right? And so my eyes was my eyes and heart was very open to it. And actually that kind of that 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 was the birth of when this whole thing uh you know my of my passion essentially to create uh, uh, something, well, I don't do something that creates justice for refugees. But on the sec, um, another aspect of it is the fact that my home country is involved in this. Indonesia is involved in this. Australia is responsible for this. The fact that both of my co-home countries are involved here and the fact that no one has extensively talking about this, the full 25-year history context of this entire situation, I've never seen other documentaries that have done that before, um, that talking about the 25-year history context. This is something that's just absolutely, absolutely gobsmacking for me because I thought by now in 2020, we would be, you know, there would be something that has, that we, there would be something that can talk about this, that can discuss this. Um, and I just thought, look, if no one's going to do it, then I'm going to have to start it. And, you know, I'm privileged as an Australian citizen, but also I'm lucky to have um, ex- growing up ex- and grow- to have grown up in Indonesia and see the diversity um, prior to moving to Australia. And yeah, just having the very expansive perspectives that I've got and then adding that mix of having the privilege of living in Australia and the modern multicultural society that we have, that was just something that kind of made me so passionate about this because at the end of the day, yes, I'm lucky to have migrated to Australia, but at the same time, why aren't we upholding our values as Australians um, and, you know, the fair dinkumness of it all? Um, <laughs> these people are human beings. They're just looking for a fresh start in their life in a place that they can thrive and survive. And it's not like everyone's coming to Australia. It's just the people in the region that are desperately, desperately trying to come to seek protection. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you are kind of perfectly placed 
to get all of the nuance and to be able to communicate the very context that all of this is in. So I think that's really amazing that you've managed to tap into like what you have access to. And a lot of people don't know this about Indonesia. Um, you know, it is an incredibly diverse place with hundreds of languages and people who are so, so different. Like, you know, we talk about diversity in Australia, like you can't really comprehend as somebody who's just, you know, maybe only grown up in multicultural Australia, just mm -hmm. how different people are in Indonesia. Like, and the fact that you've had like a multi-ethnic experience growing up and a multi-faith experience is really rare, actually, you know, because people in Indonesia are so different. And so that it's quite rare, actually, for like interfaith marriages are not super common into, you know, ethnic marriages. Sometimes they can be quite difficult to negotiate. So yep. yeah, it's, it's really set yourself up for like the perfect position to feel responsible, you know, ethically as somebody who has benefited from you know, migrating to Australia to be able to go back and try and tell this story and try and get justice for these people. So that's really incredible. And, um, you know, having watched like a section of the, you know, the film, I definitely felt it like right at the bottom of my heart as, as an Indonesian Australian as well. Like yeah. just that, that how important it was to know this truth and to be able to advocate and, and share that with a broader audience. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and, and sharing this with us. It's really, really incredible. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you would like to stay in touch with Pride in Protest and all the other community organising work we do, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash prideinprotest or on Instagram at pride.in.protest.